Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Black Duck Revival Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Hunters of Color, a 501c3 dedicated to the mission of fostering a more equitable and inclusive community for hunters. Go over to the website, huntersofcolor.org, and take a look at all the resources they have there. They've got a new community platform you can engage with, and I invite you to take a look at the five different tiers of membership that they now have available. By becoming a Hunters of Color member, you join a community of individuals passionate about hunting, conservation, and promoting the message that the outdoors are for everyone. As a member, you'll have access to exclusive events, educational resources, and mentorship opportunities that will help you develop your skills and connect you with like-minded individuals. You'll also be supporting the mission to make hunting and conservation accessible to everyone. Join Hunters of Color in building a more inclusive outdoor community and experience the connection to nature and land in a supportive and welcoming environment. You belong here. You can check out all the good work they're doing over at huntersofcolor.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, we've got an extension of my Louisiana trip. I went down there and visited with Stephen Bateman in New Orleans. Then I went about an hour north and spent uh, two nights in Ponchatoula uh, right next to this river and uh, filmed some stuff with Louisiana PBS. And then one of the producers there, Emma Reed, was kind enough to connect me with Dale Bordelon uh, from Bayou Beast Calls. Dale is somebody that I've followed and admired for several years there on the old Instagram. Uh, and I've just seen him pop up in so many different places. He's I told him it was really interesting. He's kind of got like one foot in the 1800s and one foot in the present as far as being uh, media and content savvy. But, man, Dale is doing some fascinating work down there, uh, kind of bridging a gap between yesteryear and today. Uh, he's combining utility and art and craftsmanship, uh, stuff he learned uh, from folks that were old in the you know 60s and 70s and stuff. Uh, you know, he's had dealings with people that were like old market hunters and it, man, it's really wild, but he makes these really cool, uh, beautiful, all handmade, uh, cane calls. They've got like a cedar insert and then he'll have, uh, or rather cedar, uh, like tone board. And then he's whittling down bamboo, fitting it together. Every single one is unique. He makes like a regular call and a soft call. And he's really become like a, a master and an expert at this soft calling ducks, which is something very different than you see a lot uh, or you see most of the time in like popular duck hunting culture. Definitely very different than how folks do it here in Arkansas most of the time. But it, beyond making those calls, he's also like kind of like a living historian uh, about the old ways that uh, the French settlers who he has descended from helped settle that region of Louisiana where, where he's at there in DeVille. 
so he learned how the old uh, settlers made uh, pirogues, right? Essentially like a dugout canoe. Uh, that was something that was kind of an amalgamation, as he explains, between native people and how they burned out their dugout canoes. And then the French came down and they started using steel tools. Uh, but man, it, I got to see an example of one. It's unbelievable and it's beautiful. And it's so wild that somebody is doing that and showing the integrity of that skill set and that work, uh, in the modern era. He's also like hunting over 20 year old carved decoys that he's done himself. Uh, this guy's a real student and craftsman and uh you know like uh if you're familiar with the west african term of like a griot right like a storyteller like a keeper of information like that's this is all stuff that dale bordelon embodies and then there's also just this like style part of it right which is like effortless it seems with dale but i mean dude this guy's got a awesome voice he's an awesome storyteller very communicative uh dude seriously man it was an absolute pleasure to get stopped by this guy's house i spent about four hours with him uh and and it was really cool too man because like when i walked in there i like i very much felt like i was being sized up you know he's kind of like whittling on something and he's asking me a couple questions and you know kind of feeling me out to see i i think to see if i uh if him and i shared some of our approaches uh, or an ethos towards hunting and some of this stuff, right? Uh, and dude, like, I, I mean, it was all perfectly legitimate. Man, I had a pleasure talking to him. Like an absolute pleasure, man. And then this is a podcast like very different because we recorded it outside. I'm sure there's going to be some wind noise, but it was like 100 degrees. We were in a shade tree right by the foundation that he was putting together for this new call shop. Cause he wants it all to be like 1800s authentic. So he's doing this like tamp down clay uh, floor and he's digging that clay out of a pond and hauling it over there. He's like doing stuff hard on purpose. Uh, and we don't go all the way into this, but like in our conversation, it was because you know, we talked for hours before we recorded the podcast. And what I'm, what's so resonant to me about some of Dale's work is man, that he really has keyed in and understands that the process, you know, the journey, all that cliched stuff we're talking about, but that's where it's really at, you know, like that's where he, it's not just that he's, it's not just that he's preserving ways of doing things from before he's able to understand the people that came before him in a more intimate you know, in studied manner because he understands like the work they were doing. He understands the, the mindset they had when they were out in the woods and the water and the bayous and just incredibly rich outdoor culture that uh, still survives there in Louisiana. So anyway, I'm just so privileged to bring you this really fascinating conversation with Dale Bordelon. It might be a little bit windy. Uh, I promise it's worth hanging in there. Uh, this is one of my top five podcasts uh, I've done thus far. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. 
This episode is uh, on my return trip home from this Louisiana adventure, and I'm here in DeVille, Louisiana. Uh, this is kind of over on the uh, western side, Acadian country, and I uh, have the distinct privilege of being able to visit with and talk with one Dale Bordelon, the uh, craftsman and mastermind behind Bayou Beast Calls. Uh, and I'm here at his home. We're sitting outside here in the Louisiana heat. Uh, looking at the foundation of his soon-to-be uh, authentic 1800s uh, call shop here. But, Dale, thank you so very much for letting me come visit with you and, and see what you're up to, man. This is this is an incredibly special place, and the work you're doing is is monumental, I think, in the space. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad to have you over. I, I've been following you on Facebook, and glad we got to meet. I like what you do, and uh honored to be on your podcast man well i'll tell you what dude there is a uh i talk a lot in my work and like when i'm doing interviews and whatnot with people i talk a lot about being immersed in these processes that are, are really important to me and i think bring a lot of validation and meaning to these pursuits uh i personally don't look at duck hunting as a sport i i try to refer to it as a as a pursuit or a lifestyle uh but like we said, we're sitting here, you're wearing a pair of Liberty overalls, well-worn Liberty overalls. You got drinking tap water out of a pickle jar, <laughs> right? And that's about the story of my life, what you're seeing. Well, and it's, it's what I'm seeing, like you've been nice enough to show me around your shop, the old shop, and we're talking about hand dug out Cypress P-Rogues. We're talking about hand carved... Uh, duck decoys and then probably what you're most famous for is these cane calls that you make which you showed me some of the processes there but these are like all natural materials cedar bamboo and you're you're making these yourself with a knife and what you keep referencing is like the old way how you learn to hunt what you came to value and i i'd love to just maybe start there with like talking about how you learned how to duck hunt from these old market hunters here in Louisiana and what they kind of instilled in you. Well, I, I'm sick. I've been hunting for over 50 years and we had an old feed mill growing up and, and it goes back to the late sixties, early seventies. I had these old people used to come talk to my dad and they'd have them old duck calls in their pocket. They all wore khaki clothes back then. They all spoke French and they, uh, that was the days now when the migration came to Louisiana. And these old people on good days was killing over 100 ducks a day. And they saw a lot of ducks. And it always interests me, that kind of stuff as a kid growing up. And, and neither to say my daddy was a huge duck hunter. And he used to hunt and with sacks and kill a lot of ducks. I was raised in that environment. They got people that squirrel hunt, deer hunt, duck hunt. My upbringing was a duck hunting. And so as I got older, I would visit these old people to get good stories from them, even as a kid. And then as I really got older, that when they couldn't hunt anymore, I started bringing them ducks. They tell me a good story, I'd bring them ducks. And when I kill a lot of ducks, I like to give it to the elderly people. And they appreciate that. Nothing like seeing an old gentleman when he opens the door with a big smile on his face when you hand him some ducks. That does me a lot of good for myself. And uh, But anyway, they taught me, sitting with them, 
countless hours, just everyday life, the simple life, just talking. They taught me a lot about killing ducks, how to call ducks, and decoy spreads. Uh, I sat with an elderly gentleman. He died at 101, and he I'd sit with him for hours. And he explained to me how to put decoys in a hole with the wind situation to kill the most ducks, to get ducks to line. So I just would take all this in, and I use this in my hunting, and this is kind of what I teach my kids. And I, I know y'all that follow me, I'm a big fan of soft calling. But I did learn this from these old people that kill a lot of ducks. There's an art to calling ducks. They're just not hardballing it and seeing how loud you are. So I kind of took this with what they taught me, and this is how I hunt, and it's very successful. We're killing a lot of ducks doing this. And, and so I make calls in that style just where everybody else can have, you know, enjoy that. So I think that folks, folks would probably actually be really surprised and have maybe a hard time wrapping their head around it. When you're talking about these, so these folks were elderly in the 70s, and so they were market hunting back at the turn of the century, right? Well, the people I talked to, I used to, they, no, it wasn't in the in 1900. They was killing these ducks 1940s, 50s, 60s, I would say. Okay. But uh, I, one old friend of mine in the 1940s or 50s, he sold a lot of ducks in New Orleans when they'd get, it goes back to the 1930s. He bought his first shotgun in 1932. 1938, he bought his first shotgun with mallards he killed clean. He didn't have no money to pay for it. And the, that old man he bought it from sold those ducks in his store to the public. So he went on in the, in the 1940s. They didn't have frigidaires. They would put the ducks in the live wells. The water wells, they'd last four or five days longer because it was cooler. Mm -hmm. And when they got a hundred on, they would make a trip to New Orleans and sell them. And he did that a lot of times in his lifetime. And uh, that's the one that taught me how to soft call. When you're trying to land 30 to 50 ducks in a bunch, you got to really know how to call. And then once you land them, sometimes you wait five minutes to get the best shot when they bunch up. So it was an art to all this, and, and and him and another old fella taught me how to do all. Now I don't hunt like that now. Although now when I like to land ducks and see if I could get three or four in a shot and kill them, get headshots because that's good eating. You don't have BBs in the body, and it's a sport because that's how they done it. It's a tradition I'm trying to keep alive. But these old people done that, not for tradition or sport. They were doing it for livelihoods back then. It's all a sport now. So you had to know how to really call a duck in those days. And they didn't have good calls back then. But these old people knew how to call. It's all about control. It's not about blowing the loudest call or how hard you can blow. It's about how you can control your breath, your air, using your tongue to benefit in getting those ducks to listen to you. Takes a long time to learn all that. And these were these guys were were they hunting off over? You said they weren't all hunting over like handmade decoys. No, right they there. didn't carve. These people didn't carve decoys. My friends, there was farmers. Uh, 
they did whatever they could to make a living. They didn't have a lot of money. That was just money to supplement some of their income. Uh, and and uh, it was a sport. I'm not going to say it wasn't, but it, it was mostly for the money. Everybody was poor back then. So, but the more people learn, because they didn't have a lot to go with, fool with. They learned how to make do it what they had and how to, they used that as like a tool to work with them duck calls. And one of my old friends that taught me that, I, I had the option to hunt with one of them about 35 years ago. And I had a whole loud call. My I said, you got to have, I thought that was the answer till he pulled out. I don't know if it was old Shake Schnatter or folks, but I have his calls. He gave them to me. You can't blow it. An ordinary man can't blow it. It takes the right eye presentation, and it sounds just like a duck. But that old man blew that call, and he worked ducks, and he taught me you don't need a loud call to be successful. I saw what he done. So that's how I hunt. He really taught me a lot. My daddy could call, and, and uh, several old people, but this man really showed me the definition of duck calling, the art of calling. When you think, if you were to picture a duck in your head, what kind of duck would it be? Like the first thing that would pop up? Probably a blue-winged teal. Okay. That's my favorite duck to hunt. Which season will be here in a few weeks for yeah. that. And uh, we got plans to go. Uh, we're going tomorrow, spread a wasp. No, we're going this afternoon. Yeah, spread, uh, get all them. You, get guys, all, you guys got red wasps and stuff down here, don't you? They got anything you want in them blinds. <laughs> when you get it, it, it's all, we're hunting in the buttonwood, some old brush blind. We're using last year's brush. They got spotters, they got wasps, lizards, snakes. We're going down and I'll spray some pounce. Pounce is safe for you. It's got a good residual. It'll kill for long till, you know, big duck season. So we're going to go to Southampton and just spray the outside. It's a contact killer for wasps. And then we'll get in the blonde and start scoping out the nest and just fumigate the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's going to be smelly, so we'll just get out of there, let the, you know, two or three days that the smell get out. It'll be good to hunt. And then what would be, you know, I'll tell you what I'm really interested in, man. So, like, one of the things that fascinates me is how, Place influences a person and how a person influences a place, right? And I, it seems to me that in America, a place that is really indicative of that is Louisiana. And it's, it's everything from the food to the way people talk to exactly what you're talking about, with how they interact with nature. Like, and just like shorthand outside Louisiana, like people think of Cajuns and they think of uh, this like real heavy accent or they think of like that that kind of Cajun French, but, and you've told me that you're not, you're not descended from a Cajun ancestry, but I wonder, you said that you, you grew up within a few, like 20 miles of here. So you've been here immersed in this place for your entire life. Right. How does, and this is kind of a big question, but how do you think the land influences the people and, and how they live their lives? Are you talking about like the old days? I mean, from old days to now, because you're you're interacting very intimately with the natural world around yeah, you. Yeah, well, I know my old grandpa, they use, like, well, we hunting that now. That 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 always been a good duck lake. I, I, I'm 20 miles from Catahoula. 
that's a good duck lake. And it's all the land around here is suitable for deer hunting duck. A lot of duck habitat around here. So being a, a good duck habitat, most of these old people use that to benefit their lifestyle growing up, to feed their family, selling ducks like we talked about. I know where I'm hunting at now, my grandpa used to run cows there in the 30s. My dad was in World War II. Nobody had nothing prior to the war. Nobody hunted prior to the war. There was no shells. And, then I, and when my daddy got out of the war, he asked his daddy, you know a place we can go duck hunting? He said, yeah, I know a place, because he ran his cows there from the 30s, 40s, and it's a swamp. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a big swamp of the Red River of uh, floodplains. So my daddy and his brother and a bunch of friends and all, they, they hunted there from 1950 to 1964. Then my daddy went on to make his fortune or he got in real business, couldn't hunt much. But he, my dad was able to buy that property back in the 80s and that's where we hunt today. And, uh, but there's a lot of, lot of duck habitat, deer, everything. We, we live in a good spot right here in Louisiana and be, having all this habitat, it's a lot of influence on people, you know, to hunt, has always been. So on a, they got a, uh, Buckhart down the road from here in Deville, they don't have school on the opening weekend of squirrel season. It's a holiday on Friday. They let all the, they don't have school so the kids can go camping. It's been like that for years. <laughs> for squirrel, I've heard of that a lot with deer, but for the squirrel, squirrel season. The opening weekend of squirrel season, they shut it down on Fridays. It's a holiday. They, they made that a holiday right here in Deville. That went on when we always done that go squirrel hunting or go camping. And I, I, I've been hunting over 50 years. That was always instilled in me through my dad and my uncles, my uh, ancestors. We, everything revolves around hunting with me. Now I got two boys. My wife was like that. Her daughter was a big hunter in her family. What I'm trying to say is everyone that I know where I'm from right here has something to do with hunting. Everything. You can't go to the store right here. If we go to the store right now, somebody's gonna be talking about deer hunting. Shredding food plots, getting uh putting deer stands. We going to spray a wash this afternoon. I just told you mm -hmm. that. So hunting is a big, big thing here. We have good land to hunt. And especially as everybody knows in the old days the duck migration came full force to Louisiana. There was nothing stopping these ducks. They come to the coast, Babe Root, Roosevelt, a lot of old big shots used to hunt down on the coast in, in the old days. As they say, they used to say the sports came to Louisiana to hunt. They, okay, they called them sports here the too? Sports, that's Because that's right. what they called them up in <laughs> East Arkansas. Now it's not like that no more because the ducks don't make it all the way down for several reasons. But mm -hmm. uh, So when, when you leave here today, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to walk in that house. I got a son in there with my wife. You know what we're going to talk about? He's going to say, Dad, you're going to the camp, spray them walls. I say, yeah, we got to get ready to go teal hunting. And uh, 
you, you, you want to go to Rodney Calahoula, see how much water they got. That's all every day. And I make calls every day here. So that's a subject. Plus, I'm talking with five to ten people a day on the phone or people that come here about hunting. My whole life revol revolves around hunting 80% of the day and all year long. It is a big thing in Louisiana. I'm going to let you know. And we just did we just did a show with LPB mm -hmm. Ritual. Now I want it is to is to enlighten the public. The, one of the things I've said on there, hunting is good. There's a lot of non-hunters that people don't want you to kill stuff. But like like I said on the show, people like me that's waterfowl conservation. That's the ones that's going to take care of the land and the wildlife. If you pass by and you see ducks, you don't care to hunt. You don't care about them ducks, huh? Yeah, yeah. If you if you hunt and and you like the duck hunt, you're gonna stop and make sure if something's wrong, you're gonna take care of them. You're gonna participate in binding ducks, make sure they got that water. So hunters is the biggest conservation. I want to get that straight. Hunters take care of everything in, in this world for duck hunting, deer hunting, everything. It's not people that live in the city that don't like to hunt and they bad-mouth it. They don't, they don't do nothing for the wildlife. Us hunters take care of all that. And it, we're going to continue yeah. to do that. That's an incredibly important point. Yeah, that's, that's like where the money comes from. It's not just where the interest comes from, but it's like license sales. It's every time you sell a bullet, every time you sell a gun, there's money going to that. There's conservation organizations. And like you said, I mean, look, People are, people did an amazing job once you had European settlers in the country of, man, they hunted the hell out of stuff. I mean, stuff was starting to disappear and it was hunters that said, Hey, 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 we got to stop this and preserve this or it won't be anything left. That's right. It, it, like just to say they got like ducks and limited Delta waterfowl, I'm a contribute to because I donate several stuff, contribute to it, because whether you like it or not, they don't want to take care of the ducks. Now, that's a misconception. Some people say they're short-stopping these ducks. Everybody has an idea. I'm not politically getting into that. Yeah, yeah. That are reason ducks don't come down, but number one reason, they're taking care of those ducks. That's my main concern, you know? So I participate in... in, in, in some of these organizations, because I want a duck hunt. I want my grandkids to see that. And that's where it's coming from, mostly. Well, you know, you said something that was really interesting a few minutes ago. You said that before the war that people weren't hunting because of the, the lack of shells. But haven't people always, I mean, people have always made a living and making a living down here, right? They've always been out in the swamps and in the woods. People make, stuff. yeah. My old grandpa and them never had a dollar. But they... They had cows, pigs. Maybe they had to, when you bought a shell, you bought three or four at a store. It wasn't a box. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you a story. In the 1930s or 40s, my old grandpa had one arm. And he raised eight kids. He lost it in a cotton gin. His neighbor had a few dollars. He was a Coco, his last name. And he'd go to my grandpa. It was a lot of stuff in the swamp back then. He'd go to my grandpa and say, 
my grandpa's name was Wee Day. That's Wilbert French. Okay, Wee, okay. Wee Day. He, he'd go to my, and they all spoke French back then. He'd say, Wee uh, Day, I'm going to give you 10 paper shells. I want five good old bags. The shot you miss is yours. Well, he had to feed his family too, my grandpa, so he couldn't afford to miss any shots. Now, Grobeck is a not yellow crown night heron. That fed the families in Louisiana, over here in the Vols Parish in the Great Depression. People, they're very edible birds, but people ate them so they wouldn't starve in the Depression. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what this was about, you know. So my grandpa hunted, would go hunt these Grobecks with one arm. He was poor. So he was trying to feed his family too. So he didn't want to miss too many shots. <laughs> that's that's amazing to do that with one arm. That's really kind of unbelievable. Well, he, he had one arm, and he used to see, uh, my old dad used to tell him how he'd shoot them back uh, growbacks with that. He had an old humpback browning by the capsite there. And then, I mean, I'm sure people were fishing and setting lines for gators and pulling flatheads and all that stuff, shrimping and crabbing and stuff. and finding crawdads surely or were they mostly raising their food you think they did they raised their foods they had cows people ate a lot of pig over here hogs mm -hmm. and uh but they didn't have no money I, i've talked to all these old people i could tell you some stories right here that uh there was no not even a penny in in, in the 30s it was hard to how we get a penny it was bad off than people think but and that, just i mean all all they could do was stay alive. I had an old friend that died at 101. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, uh, he told me when he was a kid, he went to school in the first grade. This was in the 20s. And the teacher, they had to get him a notebook and some pencils for the year. The teacher said, tomorrow you'll bring a penny to pay for. They supplied that to school mm -hmm. in those days. So my friend, he went home and told his mama he needed a penny. The mama said, oh, we, you got your daddy. I don't have that, you know, no money. So when the daddy came home, he said, daddy, I got to have a penny for school. He said, I don't have no money. He said, go tomorrow. They used to borrow money at a, a little store and they'd pay him. Not, you know, I don't know how they, when they get a crop in or whatever back sure. then. He, I, I don't know the method, but they would have credit. He went and asked that man that owned that store. He said, my daddy sent me here to get a penny for school. He said, son, this is not a bank. I'm not a banker. I don't make a living doing that. I can't loan money like that. A penny. That's amazing. He went to school without the penny being ashamed. And when he was in class, the teacher asked him, all right, and I'm ready to collect my penny. There was 30, 30 people in school. One person had a penny. My God. So I'm just making a point. That was nothing back in the 20s. And this old man told me that story. So the same thing with the shotgun shells. People, they sure didn't go to the store. That was nothing. You had to, they guard fish. They fish for fish. They kill ducks, whatever. It's all survival. And raise their own stuff. Yeah. So you're getting exposed, as a young person, you're getting exposed to people that have some of these stories and have some of these experiences. But I mean, you're growing up and, you know, raising kids in the 80s and 90s and all that stuff. What about 
carving your own decoys, making your own calls, learning how to make a dugout pirogue. What about that resonated with you so much? And I mean, because you've really, you know, people talk about me going off the deep end with hunting, but I mean, this is this is a completely another level. You know, like you're you're kind of like one of one. Well, I was always obsessed with our culture, and I got my decoys is over thirty years old. Some of them, I've been doing, and I wish I could do more. I just don't have time with the calls. But to me. If I'm on a duck hunt, I'm going to do it all like the old people. Uh, it's a, something that, for my personal self, to live by. So I, I seeked out, and they got people make pirogues all over here. I seeked out, I found me a dugout maker, an old Frenchman. He taught me how to build dugouts. Now, that's an art to doing that. <laughs> you got to measure. It's a lot, a lot of time put in, but anyway, I... I, I and I'm not saying I'm the best craftsman, but I mastered the art of building a dugout. I built four of them. I hunt every day in it. I retrieve my ducks in it. You can't use dogs. There's too many alligators. So I wanted to make decoys to hunt with years ago now. This is a long time ago. But I wanted to make them like my ancestors. They made them in the 1800s for survival. It wasn't to say, look how pretty my duck is. That, that was no thought mind frame of that. It was to kill a duck. Going back again to no money survival. They didn't have no power tools. They didn't have no electricity. So it was all with a hatchet and a draw knife. A draw knife. I have over 30 decoys that never saw a power tool. It's made the same fashion. They made them because I, for my personal self, that's what I wanted to do. So I did that. So I've, I've been making paddles for over 40 years. I have never bought a boat paddle yet in my life. Really? I've never bought a boat paddle. When I seen those old Frenchmen years ago with their own paddles they made, I started making them. I don't know how many I made, but I have a paddle for every, <laughs> every occasion I go. One for chasing crippled ducks, one for luxury paddling. I got different kinds. So I do that. And my duck calls, I've been making calls for about 30 years. I wanted to master the art, and I've been doing that, of the cane calls. Because the cane calls, when you talk about duck calls in Louisiana, cane calls is the first calls that was started over here. That rude, the swamps, the marsh of Louisiana in the 1800s was cane calls. So that's, I wanted to master it. And that... The way of soft calling, like that old man taught me, I wanted to master that style of calling in a cane call, and I have achieved that. I didn't do it overnight. I've never had a man say, Dale, this is how you do this. Dale, come see, I got a late. I'm going to show you how to make a barrel. I've never had a one man in my life show me that. I learned this in our old uh, shop with old vice. I don't know how many soundboards I made before I had one to blow. Then that many more I made for one to call. And now I done made over a thousand calls, but I mastered that on my own. It's, this is my style with the influence of that old market hunter sound in my cane call. And that's how I hunt today. 
and we're very successful with, with duck hunting. They really, it really works, soft calling these ducks. Man, I can tell, because we visited for a while before we turned the microphones on and listening to you now, and it's like really apparent that you take a ton of pride in that, that you take a, you take a lot of pride and, and validation in the fact that there's, there's a way to earn something. There's a way to like earn that knowledge and that proficiency and that mastery. And well, it seems I'm, like you're getting a lot out of that part of it. Yeah. Uh, unless it took me two, it takes me two months to build a boat. Most people go, just say to go to the store and buy a P-Road. You come home, you go duck hunting. What connection you have with it? I put two months into a boat, sweat, all that. Every time I pick up a duck, there's a smile on my face. You can't wipe it. You can't shoot it off with a gun. I'm so proud and happy because it's a big, I have a personal connection with it. We're looking at this floor right here in this shop. For two weeks, I hauled dirt. And it's not just dirt. I dug it out of an old pond behind with a shovel. It's a prairie dirt mixed with clay used for floors in old shops so it won't be dusty. I did this for two weeks. Some people say, well, why you don't pour a slab? That's not what I want. So out of these two weeks, I have a personal connection right here. When yeah. I make a call in that shop, it's really going to mean a lot to me. I'm yeah. proud of it. Yeah. If you got hands on something, and the longer period of time, the more you appreciate it. That's the best way I could put it. So making all these decors, whatever I do, I don't have to kill ducks. It's fun to kill a duck, but that's not where I go. It's the outing, putting the ducks out, picking them up, looking at them, see how good they float. Looking at more P-Rogue. I take all that in while I'm hunting. So, and I just don't uh, duck hunt my boat. I alligator hunt with it too and fish with it. I went Brent fishing with a uh, with an old cane pole this um, uh, not long ago with my grandson. And that's how they did back then. So I just like to do it how they did it and the old people. It brings me back to another part of my life, I guess. It soothes the soul. <laughs> what kind of a shotgun are you hunting with? I got a 1897 right now, made in 1815. I'm sorry, 1915. Close to 130 years old, 30-inch full choke. That old gun, 40 years ago, a friend of ours bought it. And my best friend, he bought it from him, I don't know, 35 years ago. But I ended up with both of them. He was my brother-in-law at one time. Very good fellow, still my best friend. And my dad, I had one and my daddy, he gave one to my daddy. My daddy passed away, so I, I, I ended up with the other one. But in that old gun, they had a, a hunting license that fella found 40 years ago from 1929. And I made a copy then, but it was at like a bank. It was black and white. It didn't come out that good. Mm -hmm. But recently, well, I posted that old hunting license 
it was about a year ago, there's a fellow that reached out to him and said, my daddy, I have the original, his daddy passed since. And he, uh, he said, Ma, I said, can I get it? We'll make a copy. So now they got good copy machines. Mm -hmm. So I made a big 11 by 17 color. It was, it's a red larches with the color and all. Came out beautiful. And I sold a bunch on, you know, if anybody wanted put in that shop, yeah. I sold a whole bunch of them to the, whoever wants one. And uh, so when I posted that, there was another guy reached out to me and told me that was his great-great-grandpa. So he came to my shop. Come to find out it was his great-great-uncle. And he bought me a picture and his life history. His name was Eugene Turner. And he was born in the 1880s, died in the 1960s. That was his shotgun, and I have his picture and his whole history. After 40 years of that gun being in our whereabouts, last year I got all the information. So you talk about a connection to kill ducks with, huh? It's not just a gun I bought at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been in and out for 40 years, now I got the whole history, so it's, it means a lot to me. It, that thing, and I'm going to tell you something else. I, you can that thing will shoot a duck just as good as any gun you're gonna buy right now anywhere. I'll be honest with you. Shoots, I'm sure it shoots two and three quarters. That's all I shoot. Yeah, it's not made for three inch. I don't shoot nothing. I shoot a. Uh, I don't shoot nothing bigger than an ounce and a quarter. That's too big. You know, you don't want nothing bigger than that in that old gun. Uh, have you ever Have you ever hunted with paper shells? We had paper shells when I was little. I can't remember if I shot them or not, but I remember my daddy having them. And I'm sure I shot some in the early 70s. I know mm -hmm. I did because he don't have them no more. I must have shot them, you know, just at the dove hunting and all. But I never hunted with him like a duck hunt, no. Yeah. You know, there's there's actually like a, I, I don't know that there's three of them, but uh, there are some folks that are, like making like boutique handmade paper shells specifically to shoot out of those old guns because those old guns aren't they're not designed for like these big loads and like bismuth and all that stuff you know no uh 18 Remington made the 1897s they made the same gun in 1883 but it was the old smokeless powder mm -hmm. you have to shoot a Low pressure shell. 1897 is when they beefed up with this newer powder. Okay. And they beefed up that same gun. I think they called it 1883. But it's the same gun. They just put heavy, everything heavy in there. They beefed it up to handle those bigger loads. Okay. So you, 1897 on, you can shoot any shell. Oh, okay. Like now. So I could shoot lead in that old 1897, and so and I shoot uh, those big bismuth mm -hmm. ball shells, whatever. Uh, they make a good shell, but uh, yeah, boss does, yeah. Uh, so I can shoot all that, but it's not made for an ounce and a quarter bigger than an ounce and a quarter. Okay, like an ounce and three eighths, I wouldn't shoot that in there. Not, and I keep it like a uh, ounce and a quarter. Uh, you got to. Yeah, no more than two and three quarters. It's not designed for that. Those guns were designed like two and a half inch, but you can shoot a two and three quarter. It'll fit. But uh, shoot some well, too. I, I'll kill 
we do kill plant ducks with them old guns. Yeah, I was looking at, so you're making these handmade paddles out of cypress, and it looks like, you're, like you said, you're saving them kind of as like trophies, wall hangers, uh, memories for your boys. And then you've got, you know, this, you sit, put the year on it, what season it was, and then how many birds y'all got. And I think last year, did you have 800? The season before last. Okay. Last year, I guarantee we killed the same amount of ducks. I missed my limit four hunts. But I had a board that was working, and my best friend was sick. We didn't have the man in the blind. But the year before last, we killed 800 ducks. That's unreal. With, that old, with them old, well, my boy shoots the eight seven says I shoot them old guns. Yeah, it was good. And you and you're you're shooting. You guys are shooting lots of teal, lots of gadwall, legends, everything, but not many milers no more. But uh, regions, a lot of gray ducks, probably eighty percent gray ducks, seven to eighty percent. A lot of regions the last few years. A lot of teal, wood duck. Yeah, we we got a good variety, and we kill a few milers, but not like the old days. But it's it's the terrain we're hunting and the top of calling. I'm gonna be honest with you now. You, you can't kill them ducks with them hard with them hard calls, them you know loud calls. I didn't try that while we hunt. You run everything out the woods. You got to barely. You got to undercall like that old man told me. You got to undercall those ducks. And that's what we do. But you actually you described something to me, which is that you know like the. The traditional thought process would be that if ducks are working, if they're there on top of you, you shut up. But you say that you keep soft calling to them. I call the whole time they're working, but in a very low shuttle version. That's realistic. I'll try to do what ducks do. Ducks always making noise on the water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that I do it in a soft, very soft version. I can do it right here if you want me to show you. Yeah, please. So this is what I'm talking. Now this call here is a soft, my personal soft call, one of them. And I'm gonna be, I don't even take a breath. I just blow the air of God. But this is what I do when ducks is 80 yards broke working. And people might say that fella's nuts. No, I'm not nuts because I've been doing it for years and it's working. So this is all I do. all i do that's about all i call and that'll put 800 ducks in the freezer it's sure well it we it sure yeah you're being realistic like it, you know you want to under call them but it's a confidence call but you they're hearing that but you're not scaring them blowing them out but they you know they it sounds natural to them so i do that the whole time ducks are working but like i said just on a quiet version these these calls is very soft i make these calls easy 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 to blow now making okay having a soft call and and we discussed this with, with this old hunter that taught me you gotta have a call that's very easy to blow so when you have a call that's easy to blow you want to blow as least as you can you don't want to push a lot of air you just want to blow soft, soft, because it don't take much for those calls to, to call. 
People ask me, can I get some reeds with your call, set of reeds? I say, you don't need that. I got calls 10 years old with the same reeds. Really? You're not changing them out? I never year. change them. They don't stick. The reason why you don't need reeds, they're so easy to blow, there's not a lot of vibration on them. Think about it. I've had calls where I had to change reeds, but every two, I'm not going to name the brand. Maybe every two years, they mm -hmm. would bust. Mine never do that. Because it's such shuttle, listen to this. I'm hard blowing. Yeah, that's as, that's as ducky as something could be. Well, I appreciate it, but you got to sound like a duck now. When you're working a bunch of ducks, six to 80 yards, you better sound like a duck too. And that's, so I try to incorporate that in all these calls. Are you... Are you ever using like uh, a whistle or like a gadwall call or anything? My little, my, my, my best friend, he uses the, uh, that Ouijan whistle. Okay. When we're working. And sometimes I'll shut up, let him, not when I'm hunting with him. When I'm hunting my personal self, and I, and I made a post on my page the other day, I have a teal call. If I'm working ducks, now if I, not, I don't do it in the woods because these teals don't go in the woods. If I'm hunting where a teal fly in the, you know, open button woods or whatever, mm -hmm. I'll give a good kick, 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 three or four notes and shut up. Mixed in with that call. Yeah. And I, I find that works very good. It's a confidence call. It's realistic. Teals inter, fly, uh, interact with other ducks and they call blue wings. Kill a lot of green wings. Green wings come. People say, I want a green wing call or... You don't have to have that. All you need is that blue wing call. The little hand green wings don't call like those blue wings. Mm -hmm. So I I got a little blue wing and I use that for all the duck teals. I mean, every duck come to it. It's a good conference call. You know what's interesting about the way you're describing the way you hunt is, I mean, and you've seen this. Uh, duck duck hunting in popular culture. It's, it's a lot of loud music. It's a lot of, I don't know, man. It's like a lot of hero shots. It's, it's just pretend that you're like at war with the ducks or something, you know? And it's about, and I mean, look, and to be honest, you know, I learned how to blow a call on a cut down, like on an old, old. I learned how to blow a call really loud and punchy, but you get sometimes you get out of here with people man and they're just screaming and screaming and screaming at ducks and it's about it it's like they're trying to beat them instead of join them you yeah know? that that's too much calling I, I know what you're talking about if you go to catahoula you hear that all over the lake i'm not saying nothing about it but and you're not neither but th that that's just the style they call but that's not how i call i won't blow a call if i have to do all that Hmm. Hmm. But there's some places people claim they hunt. They have to do that. I've never hunted them places. <laughs> I don't know. Have you hunted outside of Louisiana much? Yeah, I don't hunt. I mostly hunt around here with my kids. But yeah, I've been last year. I went to Beaver Dam, and uh, I've hunted Kentucky. I've hunted around. I mean, over the years. But yeah. Now they call a lot up there. You know, they loud. I mean, they mm -hmm. call loud. It uh, it does work. I'm talking about. 
here in Louisiana. Well, no, that's and look, I think that's that's actually what we're talking about with the place influencing the people. Yeah, but yeah. I think, and I think about this often, and I know I've hunted Kentucky where they got on them calls as loud as can be, and me too, them guards, then shut it down once those ducks really start committing. Mm -hmm. I believe right there, if you had a soft call, it would really enhance killing ducks. I, you know what? I think you're really right. I never too. heard them blowing a soft call. No, no. But I believe, and you know, I'm not gonna jump in there and take over in another man's. I don't do that. I respect yeah. a man's blowing. But I believe the places I've hunted, when them ducks start coming down 80 yards broke. If you could soft call, I believe you'd have to kill in, in any of these places. I'll tell you, so we talked about someone we both mutually know, Adam Klein-Peter, who I've hunted with a bunch. He, like, really taught me a lot about running a spec call. And that's something I saw with him is uh, we'd be duck hunting. And, like, we'd be buddy hunting out in the timber or whatever. But Adam, you know, everybody in Arkansas blows loud. Adam would bust out that whistle and he would use that whistle a lot and i saw how effective it was and i think my impression was was not just that he, he was adding something natural to the equation but that he was also presenting something different than there i mean they're getting screamed at all the way down the flyway right and you present them something different and something that's not that's not so intimidating and it makes them want to commit yeah, I, w I would say that, uh, and and duck hunting the same. I mean, uh, yeah, that's what you mean, duck hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Uh, that's why when ducks are, some days they get stale while we hunt. I'm not going to say they don't. They do. That little whistle that teal called, at the end of the day, it helps you with a few more ducks to bring home. Uh, I can tell you that. I've seen a day where just a teal call killed ducks. Mm. No duck call, just that teal call. Now, you ain't going to do it every day, but it's how it's happened. It's a confidence call. They, they all know what each species sound like, and they interact you know, every day with each other. So they know what that teal call sounds yeah. like. So, yeah, we do that a lot. And you can re if you can read a duck, you can tell if you like that or not, just how he flies. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And then that kind of helps you, you know, to know how you can carry on with it. Most definitely. Uh, well, here, I actually, so this is like personal interest because, and I took a little video in there, but you, you hunt alligators. I'm going to get to um, three, three and a half, four weeks, something like that. I'm going to get to do my first gator hunt, which is something I've been really interested in because like we talked, we talked earlier too about like, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky. I get to travel all over the place. I get to see really amazing stuff. And I, I started to spend a lot of time out West, Montana, Utah, and these mountains are cool. But if I could pick a place to stay, I'd pick the bayou there by Brinkley that I like to be in. And I, my favorite way to fish is to run lines. I love floating down the bayou. Just taking it all in, running lines, catching catfish, which is, I mean, the way you're, the way you're getting alligators is, 
like a big limb line, right? You're holding, yeah. Except you don't put it. You don't put the bait in the water. You put it above the water. Right. But uh, when you're out there, when you're out there gator hunting, are you? Is this? Is this a reference to the old ways as well, or is this? Uh, is it more of an adventure because it's a gator, or like how are you approaching getting an alligator? Well, we we kind of doing it like the old ways. That's how they always done it. Set a line with a big hook and a, a piece of meat or fish. Th- that's always been the staple way of doing it. What do you What are you using for bait? I I get beef lungs from the slaughterhouse. Okay. Because that's a sponge blood. It's steady. It's got that deep. Man, them gators can smell that. And I use chicken quarters. Okay. To be honest with you, anything that starts stinking, because they, they eat anything. I usually take my bait out the day before I set it. So when I'm setting it, it can start smelling. Yeah. You usually catch good the next morning. If you don't do that, it's going to take an extra day. You probably won't have much the next, the first day, but you start catching the second day. So I take it out a day before. I've used bass fillets. My boys caught bass fillets. I caught 11 and a half foot on a bass fillet. You can use anything. But that beef is easy. I cut it up. What I need when I get it, I freeze it. It's easy to bait. It's easy to fool with. That's probably my favorite bait. And uh, How are they getting hooked? Are they swallowing hooks or are they getting mouth hooked? What you want to do, I'll, I'll, I'll stick that hook to that meat, and I come back and I bury that hook in the meat. Okay. You don't want them to feel it when they grab it. You want them, but you want it to come out. So when they swat, you don't want to hook them in a the jaw because you ain't going to hold a big gator. He's going to tie that straight that hook. So what you want to do, you, you want them to swallow it. Then when they start pulling, that hook's going to hook them in his throat or his belly. Okay. Then, you know, they won't fight much because they belly hook. That's the best way to do it. And uh, But in the old days, the old hunters, I got a book in there. I got some. I got a diary of some old stuff from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The old people used to go in Texas and Louisiana. They used to go at night. You can see them alligators at night. They would shoot them. They'd skin them in the woods, and then they'd they'd find out alligator has a hole. They would go with a three-eighths rod, a long rod, and and. Find that alligator hole, go on top, and knock it in that hole, and hit on it. And the vibration, it would drive those gators out the hole. And then they'd shoot them coming out. But it's a rule of thumb. Once you start shooting an alligator in his hole, you start you kill them off. You kill them all. So most of the hunters just try to catch them or shoot them and not fool the holes. Then you'll okay. always have alligators. That, that's kind of an old ritual, you know. That's kind of like, are you familiar with worm grunting? Uh, well, it's the same method. Yeah. Yeah, just in a bigger version. That's it. That, man, that's really, really interesting. I have all kind of documentation on that. Uh, and an alligator, they... Females do that, too. Most people think it's just males. A male can hear a female a mile away doing that and go to the exact... I mean exact point to that. They're very focused on in where to go. 
Really? I, w I would not have thought that. Oh, yeah. They they can find, if they can hear that female, they can key in on her on the dime. This is all stuff that I've got literature from, you know, people done tests. I've been doing this 37 years, catching gators. And I, now it's a, they're not worth nothing. My little grandson caught his first one last year. We caught three over 11. It's a no, it, to me, it's a tradition. Now I'm going to do it till I can't go no more, I guess. Do y'all keep the hides on them? Or no, do the hides? no, no, we don't. We used to have to scan all that years ago. Mm -hmm. They didn't want the hide. They want, I'm sorry. They didn't want the meat. They wanted the hide. Yeah. Now it's vice versa. Really? So now when you go, I throw them in a big box with ice mm -hmm. and I bring them to the market and they just, I sell them whole. That's the job. It takes about two and a half hours to clean a 10 foot gate on, on the ground. It's hard. It's a bad job. I've done a bunch of that growing up. How many, how many gators are you catching a year? This year I got, I don't catch man. I got 10 this year. <laughs> That's more gators than most people will ever see. Uh, <laughs> I know swamp people, they get a whole bunch of tags and all, but I don't care. But that's enough to fool it. Yeah. I try to do that one weekend, but then always the following weekend is teal hunting. And I don't I don't want to make that up too much work. So try to do that, make a three-day weekend and try to do that. Plus, while we're hunting, that's why we duck hunt now. So I want to get that out. Clear them out before Last you Last year, I got hunting. three over 11. That's why I piled my P-Rope. Are we killing these ducks? And I saw one this year. I know he's 12 or better. So he's there somewhere, and I want to get him out because he's going to be following me in that P-Rogue one more. I don't, Man. I don't want to aggravate him one morning. <laughs> yeah, you know, we had a place that we hunted, a place me and my buddy used to go, and uh, we'd run when the crappie spawn was happening, like they say down here, Sacolay. We'd go there. And it would depend on, like, what the weather was like. Sometimes they'd start spawning as early as Valentine's Day. But we'd go run yo-yos for them and, you know, hang out all night. We went back. To, that's actually, that place is the first place my dog ever picked up a, uh, a bird. And it was, the whole bayou was froze over. We had a, we had a dude in front of the boat with an axe chopping us in there. And we wallowed out a hole, and he got a, we got a bunch of juvie gadwalls landed. But anyway, so we hunted there a few times that year. And that January was like really weird and warm. Like it warmed up to like 60 degrees. And the reason we stopped going in there, man, is because gators came up in the decoys. And I was like, I was like, my, I can't put the dog no, in there. No, 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 no. Because, yeah. Last year, it was September, uh, January the 1st. That was a gator that ate an auto. And January, it was a 55 degree at night. So when it gets 55 degrees and I went at night, mm -hmm. late six is the high, yep. they feeding. Don't let nobody tell you they're not. They don't hibernate all year. Do they go, so or when it gets cold, they go down in those holes? They got a hole, they go in. They just go in there and be dormant, but they, mm -hmm. they come out. They come out in cold weather, but they don't feed. When it gets in the 50s at night, mid-50s, they get, they're starting to. They go, I've seen that. They don't let nobody tell you different. I've shot, I mean, I had them steal my ducks in December and January last year. Every year. Really? On them warm days, 
I had a nine foot in my decoys last year, January the seventh or the ninth. I forget. Looking for a duck. And then you can you can kill a duck and they'll get to the duck before you do. Absolutely, in January. That's unreal. They out all year long. It depends on when that weather warms up. They don't hibernate all year. Mm. They'll chase you. You you bet. They'll get after you, man. That's what they're looking for. <laughs> I hope they don't get me. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, they're looking for anything to eat. Well, hey, I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions, and I'm going to let you go. And, uh, again, I so appreciate your time. But So something that's really cool that you're doing that, man, there can't be many people doing left is these pillows. So you're saving all the down from your ducks. But it's you're not just – ripping all the feathers off and shoving it in a pillowcase. You've got a whole process to this. Yeah, if you go to uh if you if you go to YouTube and Google Bayou Beast pillow making, I have a full-fledged video. You got to take just the breast feathers, not off the sides cuz it starts getting in long stems. And it takes it takes an average of 200 ducks all species to make a pillow. And I pluck them every year, and I save my feathers. It takes about a year to cure, so I try to make a pill a year. Well, let's let's describe that process. So you've got you've got like a shed over there, and you've got like a bunch of bags that would be like like you'd buy crawfish in or crawfish, something. Crawfish, yeah, it gets the air through them. I find that's the best. And you've got them sitting in there, and you're letting them you're letting them age and cure for a year. Right. They got a little stem. There's a little, it's like a germ. That's what the old people tell me. It takes a year to cure that. And the first, when you first, they, they smell it when you put them in there. Then after two or three months, you know, they, they all, they're good. After a year, they, they fresh, good, clean, smell good. So I age them a year, then uh, I use that old uh, blue ticking material. You get that at Walmart. That's been around for several hundred yeah, years. Yeah, sure. That's what the old people, that's what I use. And just, you know, whatever pillow you want. I have an old lady that sold me my pillows. Old French woman that grew up doing that. She makes my cases and I just, and my old mother-in-law, she's she's 80, fixing to be 80, 87. She's an old sewer from way back. She, uh, she asked me, so. And you said that, you said, you said that's the best sleep you can get on one of those down pillows. I'll tell you one thing, if you have, trouble sleeping that'll cure it it's hard to get up in the morning that i never i'll never sleep i don't care what pillars mr pillar makes it, it can't be <laughs> <laughs> i never had nothing this comfortable i'm telling you and that's i mean but that's not something for sale that's just for you and your family oh right? yeah that's that's for me and, and my family I, i'm making my boy one and then making me one for the camp everywhere i go i bring my pillow so i'm gonna have me an extra one and then down the road, somebody else, my wife might want one. It's just, a, I'm just trying to keep up with that tradition. Yeah. And yeah. it's not hard. When we get back, I just go through the feathers. After we take pictures or whatnot, then we start plucking the duck. Mm-hmm. And I bring a bucket with me everywhere I go. I went last year to beaver dime hunting, and I bought my bucket, and I took <laughs> Huh? Yeah, people never seen anything like it, have they? No, they don't know what I'm doing. Well, they know now the ones that know me. They know I'm saving up for a pillow. That's, man, that's. We killed a bunch of miles. We killed 20 miles over there, I believe, on a hunt. That was a lot of feathers now. Yeah. I didn't want to miss out on that. 
Them gray ducks make probably the best pillow feathers there is. They got a lot of down December on. Mm -hmm. Get a lot of down off of them gray ducks. You can't hardly use a Darva duck for a pillow. Really? They don't have a lot of feathers. Oh. Darva ducks don't have a lot of down. Well, I guess, I mean, that would make sense if they want to be able to get down through the, because that would add buoyancy. Yeah. I don't even fool with that if we kill, uh, I don't. And if they're kind of bloody, I've, I, I try not to, but if we got half body shot, they're bloody pretty good, I wash them with Dawn soap. Okay. I, I put soap and water and, and rinse them with my hand, and just drain it out, and then I pour it in a sack. Sure, they just as fine. The next day, you let them draw or not, you're going you to have to fluff them up. Mm -hmm. But they smell clean, clean. You know, they, the blood washes out good. But here's another thing about hunting like them old people. They sold feathers too, my old friends. They used to line ducks and shoot ducks in the head because they're selling it to the restaurants. Yeah. They don't want body shots because they, they can't feed that to a customer. Mm -hmm. That's why they done it, and that's why I do it because it's an old tradition. Plus, if you're making pillars, you won't get as many BBs in the body versus the duck flying. With all the blood, yeah, yeah, yeah. you get mostly headshots, and you know you have good uh, for pillars. Man, you know one of my favorite, most favorite hunts. This was, this is the first year I had the old church, and I had a guy, a buddy, come down from Fayetteville up in North Arkansas, and I took him out on the bayou. It was opening morning, and man, it was like what I hear about the old days. Man, we were working great groups. I mean, big for me, you know, 25, 30 greenheads. We got our limits, just amazing hunt. And then he went home. And so then I stayed there. And then I went back the next day to almost the same spot, but real close. And just me and my dog. And he's, my dog's 13 now. He's, he's all grayed up. He's having trouble getting around. I, I don't know if he's going to pick up any more birds, but uh, we we're sitting there. And I was just, you know, it was almost legal light. And I was just messing around calling. And I landed about 25 or 30 mallards. And I had to wait a few minutes before it was legal to shoot them. And I just waited, and, you know, the dog was sitting there just shaking because he wants oh, to go get them. I could see that, man. And I just waited, and I saw it was legal light, and I waited another minute, and they were just – they didn't know I was there, you know. And they were just swimming around, and I let them line their heads up, and I shot two, and they jumped up, and bang, bang. And I was done. And it's one of my favorite hunts ever. I wasn't there a super long time. Then I just hung out, drank coffee. It makes it nice when it goes like that. Oh, I love man. Those hunts. It's, I mean, it don't happen all the time. <laughs> it doesn't happen no. most of the time. But uh, all right, last question I'm going to get you with and let you go, Dale. Uh, so if you're doing, if you and your family are killing hundreds and hundreds of ducks a year and you've got all these great, and like I saw last year the teal work. Last year was probably the fattest ducks I've ever killed just overall, especially the teal. But, I mean, like, how are you going to cook them? If you're at camp, how are you guys cooking your ducks? Most of the time at the camp, we make gumbos because you, you cook that or fry that last through Sunday. Mm -hmm. You cook once. I love to keep all my teals, blue or green wings, so, and, and, and my wood ducks. So at the camp, what I'll probably do, there's an old uh, beautiful corn tree by the camp, and I always smoke my ducks with that. We got a big barbecue pit, 
and I, I leave them teals whole. I don't debone nothing. But I put like 10 teals. I put them on that pit and I'll smoke them with that pecan wood. Mm -hmm. About 20 minutes. You don't want to kill it. You just want to taste that juice and it bought. Carl, me and my boy were talking about that last. My best friend. My best friend, you and your wife can make the best gumbo I ever ate. But yours might be a little better because it has that smoke. Yeah. But you don't want to oversmoke it. 20 minutes is good. So I smoke my ducks on, on our barbecue pit. And I make a big gumbo with it. Fresh sausage, smoked sausage, and eggs. But eggs are not gumbo. Like hard-boiled eggs? You, you, you bust them in the juice. When that gumbo's done, mm -hmm. crack them in the, put that hard, and you crack it in the bowl. Really? And it'll stay, it'll poach. And it just adds the flavor in that juice, man. Really, man? That's you, wild. You put about 10, we put 12, 18 eggs every gumbo. We got everything. I'm going to tell you now, when I make a gumbo, they got some stuff in it. And, uh, so we do that, and we always eat sweet potatoes with our gumbo. No potato salad. How do you do this? Do you, like, roast you the sweet bake potatoes? Them, bake them on a sod in the oven. Yeah. About an hour on 350. Or you can tell when they're done. Yeah. And we just, I like to put mine, well, I like to put it in the gumbo when I'm serving it. But, you know, you eat it on a sod. But over here, it's a, it's a potato community where I live. You go to Lafayetteville Platte, they eat uh, uh, potato salad. Yeah. See, we don't. I'm not knocking it, but that's not the way we was raised. Do you, are you, are you just doing the gumbo? Are you putting rice in there or no rice? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you gotta have rice. You got your rice there, okay? Rice, gravy, and the ducks, and then I put my sweet potato, and your pickle juice. I put pickle juice and hot sauce, whatever. Okay. That's uh. You know, so I was telling you about that smoker me and my buddy built. I do, I mean, exactly how you're talking about uh, baking those sweet potatoes, but I do them on the smoker. And, man, they they are delicious. But I'm going to, man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try that. Uh, you seem like a man who has eaten gumbo before and knows what you're talking about. So if you're telling me I need to crack an egg and eat it with a sweet potato, I'm going to try it, Dale. I don't think you'll run from it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Nah, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna get with it. You do okra in your gumbo or no? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okra, okra, chicken, and shrimp. Okay. Oh yeah, and okra is good sausage. We make gumbos with everything, everything but deer meat and alligators. I never, I mean, an old hen, an old rooster, organic chicken. That's good stock for gumbo. You gotta have a good coarse meat, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, ducks, duck gumbo is good. So we kill all these ducks. We got a lot of ducks. Nobody want. well, I ain't going to say that. Sometimes we hunt that morning, we go that evening, and we're doing something. You don't want to stay over the stove. Yeah. So we try to make, we go one night. Every year for Thanksgiving, we go that Wednesday. That Wednesday, I make a big, big gumbo for Thanksgiving, and they'll last till Friday, Saturday. Mm -hmm. You don't have to cook but once. Yeah. So when you get back from the hunt, we, about 10, 11 o'clock Thanksgiving day, all you got to do is heat the gumbo up. It's done. Yeah. But that's kind of our old tradition. 
Compost goes good. Now at home, we do that too, or we bake them. Bake them whole. Do you really? I pot roasted something the other day, and that old Tom pot pan there, put about 10 teals. The last batch I cooked, I cooked a speckled belly and seven blue wing teals. And we, I put them in that pan, put some potatoes cut up. If you, if you can, put one turnip diced up. That gives it a heck of a flavor. Okay. But don't put no more than one. I put a little Italian dressing, Whiskershire sauce, mm -hmm. and I put a little strawberry jelly or fig preserves. Okay. It gives it a good yeah. punch. And uh, I put a little roux, and that's about it. I put the water, don't put it more than halfway up the duct. It'll be too watery. Yeah. But halfway up. And I cook all that. You're not stirring it. If I'm going to do it in a pot, I don't go no more than two hours. Man, start ploop, ploop, ploop. It won't fall off the bone, but it'll be tender. And it'll, and those birds will be tender all the way through the legs and thighs, everything. If you cook it on top of the stove while you stir, mm -hmm. when, that, when, when you put your water and if you bring it to a ball, shut it down on low. Okay. And you know how it goes ploop, ploop, ploop. Yep, yep. Don't let it go over two hours. And your duck, squirrel, everything you cook on the bone or stay on the bone, but it'll be tender. When I put it in the oven, I go three hours because you're not stirring it. Yeah. When you take that teal out, it wants to fall through the skin. You talk about good, partner. Mm, yeah. You know, you're not, I don't like to eat a gravy with bones all over. And so you won't have that problem like that. Yeah. That's how I do it. Are you doing, what are you doing with deer? Are you doing like fried deer and are you making gravies with deer? And yeah, you fry it down. We debone it, you know. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, I, man. God, man, that's good stuff. I was, we we're talking about tank, uh, who hosts that show, the ritual show, man. And, uh, we were talking about food and I said, man, my favorite thing to eat is rice and gravy. Oh, yeah. Like, absolute so. favorite thing to eat. She's like, oh, I love it so much. And, man, I mean, if I'm being real, 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 it would be uh, it would be pork. It would be like, and, I, you know, I get to kill hogs sometimes, man, and I haven't, I haven't killed one that didn't taste good. But, man, that pork fat and just, you know, just a little bit of flour on there, just. There was an old, there was an old lady. She had a, uh, a restaurant in Little Rock years back when I had this landscaping company. It was called Medea's. You know, this is, I was mid-20s or whatever. And I was just out there busting hump all day, you know. And I would go to her, and it was like $30. And she'd give me a whole tray, like a big aluminum foil, foil tray, just like fried pork chops and gravy. And that's all I ate until it was gone. I would just oh, <laughs> eat it. That's the top of the line, though, right buddy. there. Oh, man, it was so good. And, man, I can't stand it. She had her whole family working there. And they just ran it into the ground. You know, they, they didn't pay their taxes, and they got shut down and broke my heart because, man, it was so good. Yeah, you but, hate to see a place like that close. Yeah, it really does. But I managed, I bought a T-shirt from her. She had a T-shirt with her picture on it, like holding up some food, man. And I've got, I've actually got a, like one of my favorite pictures is me and my wife back before we were married right in front of the bayou that I was telling you about. Uh, and 
I'm holding up two big blue cats that we had caught out there. And I got that Medea shirt on with the sleeves cut mm. off, man. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a Oh, you don't memory. forget those places like that. Oh, man, it was so good, dude. And you hate to see them closed, like you say. Yeah. I ran into one of our, I ran into our grandson a few years after that. He was working for the ice company. But, uh, well, shoot, Dale, look, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, man. I've been, I've had a list of people that I've wanted to get on the podcast, and you've been at the top of the list for a couple of years, man. I just. Well, Jonathan, I enjoyed it. I'm glad you came over. I enjoyed your visit. Man, thank you. Yeah, it was, it's really an absolute privilege, man. And you just. Well, same here. I've been, like I said, I've been following you. I'm finally glad we got to connect. Man, I, I'll tell you something, Dale. Like, you are, you are really good for and you're really important to duck hunting, man. Well, like, I appreciate that. The, w what you're doing is. I just hope I can live long enough to keep enjoying it, you know. <laughs> oh, man, dude, you're, I can tell you right now, man, you got. You got 25 more years in you of duck hunting. I hope so. If I knew that for sure. I, I would sure be a happy man. Well, uh, hey, why don't you tell folks? Oh, and here's the other thing. So I would encourage everyone to get a Bayou Beast call, but how long is that waiting list? Well, I started, these calls is all made behind. And I want it. I don't have a late, I don't have much machinery. Just a few files and rice. So what I'm trying to say is just time consuming. Do I make them? And I have my list is pretty long. It's close to three years. But if anybody can wants to come to my shop, they can get whatever they want. And oh wait, wait, are you serious? Can I buy a call from you before I leave? Absolutely. Oh shoot, man, you just <laughs> made my day. All right, well, uh, so if you want to come down here, you can get you a call. Otherwise, you got to wait three years, folks. It, but go to uh, my page, is Bayou Beast page, my call page, and you'll see what I got. And I'm on there blowing that call. you see what I got. And then, man, and you know what I've been really impressed with? There's actually quite a bit of video documentation of you and what you're doing. And then you're really active on Instagram. You're active on Facebook. You're like, I was talking to Emma yesterday about it. I said, man, it's so interesting. He's got like one foot in 100 years ago and one foot in the present. <laughs> I like the old ways, I'm going to tell you. It's good right now, but I'm all about The older I get, the further back it looks like I go. I love the old school hunting. Well, man, I uh, man, I wish you a, a, a really successful uh, gator and duck season, man. And uh, let's stay in touch, man. I, I just love what you're doing. And everyone who's listening to this podcast, you really you owe it to yourselves to check out Dale and, and what he's doing, the, the heritage that he's maintaining because uh, it's really it's really really special and it's it's something that i don't see a lot of i definitely don't see enough of it in duck hunting uh but anyway dale thank you so much and folks thanks for listening until next time thank you so much for listening all the way through to this episode of the black duck revival podcast uh, as always produced by brian Sachs and me, Jonathan Wilkins. Check out Instagram and check out the website. I've got those hunt dates uh, and workshop dates are live on the site now. We've just got a handful of spots on all the stuff. Uh, real quick rundown. We've got a super cool duck hunt just for four people, very small scale. 
down in central Texas. We're going to be hunting on the Ringo Ranch. That's Johnny Ringo. If you've seen the movie Tombstone, he's a guy that uh, Doc Holliday offers to be the Huckleberry to. So uh, this is his family's ranch. He helped kind of found the thing, and it's been in his family for six generations. And there's just phenomenal duck hunting there. So we're going to be there with Southern Skies Outfitters hunting dabblers and uh, divers there on the ranch. Uh, then that's going to be at the beginning of December. At the end of December, going into New Year's and New Year's Eve, we're going to be hunting Sandhill Cranes down about an hour from Houston. And it'll be a couple days of that. We're going to stay at this really cool historic ranch that we got to stay at last year. Uh, just beautiful kind of South Texas stuff. And uh, man, hunting those cranes is is pretty phenomenal, dude. It's If you like goose hunting, if you like field hunting, man, this is like that on steroids. And it, it does. It's something very uh, Jurassic feeling about those birds. Uh, and then also we've got some uh, really cool workshops. We've got one in October that's going to be with Joshua LaCoche Henson uh, from Oklahoma and the Chickasaw Nation. And he'll be at the lodge there. We're going to do a one-day duck decoy carving class. Uh, he's going to take you all the way through uh, taking wood and a block of cork and turning that into a functional, beautiful uh, duck decoy that you can then take those skills and use them uh, to make your own decoys and develop your own style and you know just kind of get that much further into the craft and school of waterfowl. Uh, you're going to get some tools to help you do that and those tools are going to be yours to keep. Uh, and I think the price on that's like $450, but uh, that's all your materials. That's lunch there at the lodge. That's uh, hands-on instruction. I think there's six spots on that. And then we also have a wild game processing class that I'll be leading. Uh, I think it's like 150 bucks, real reasonable. And you just come to the lodge. We'll hang out for four or five hours. Uh, we're going to break down an uh, example of large game, small game, and a bird, right? Uh, not sure yet if I'm going to be using domestic analogs for wild stuff, but uh, probably a good chance we could have some venison up there. And then I'll work you through how to make tamales with this stuff, how to make stock, how to do like some basic wild game cooking techniques that's going to make you, uh, it's going to fill out your pantry and your options there, right? So you're not just doing ground and sausage. Like we're going to learn how to make sausage. We're going to learn how to make tamales. We're going to learn how to make, uh, start with like a stock and take that down all the way to like a demi glaze we're going to talk about searing and braising uh long cooking fast cooking uh and then we're going to do that with birds we're gonna do that with like a small game squirrels rabbits the like uh and then large game so we're talking about you know anything mammalian so that'll we'll we'll work you through it man that'll work for goats or deer or black bears or elk any of that stuff so uh should be a really uh really full day we're gonna have hors d'oeuvres and stuff we'll be snacking the whole time it'll be real fun and it's just there at the lodge in brinkley so check that out on the website it's blackduckrevival.com also instagram always posting stuff there just black duck revival and please leave a review uh written five stars hopefully five stars if you think we're doing a good job and uh tell people about the podcast we got some really cool guests coming up uh, and I've got some really cool trips uh, coming up for the next several months, man. So I'm going to be around some fantastic people, uh, really interesting perspectives, and in some wild, wild places. So thanks so much. See you later.